Good morning, High Point. Hi, my name is Femi, F-E-M-I. I'm one of the elders here. And today's scripture reading is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. This can be found on page 1852 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Um, as you flip there, we've read this passage uh, a lot if you've been coming to High Point. Um, one of the things we believe in is that mastery over something is better than familiarity. And to move to that direction that you have to go through a phase of boredom with, I've heard this and I've heard this and I've heard this. So those of you who have heard me say this and heard me read this before, um, we'll be reading out of this and you'll hear me make some changes from the version that we memorize, which is from an older version, which is more accurate. So let's read this together. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, we may be able to participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed of his past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Amen. You guys got it? Good. Hey, everyone. I'm going to finish this morning a sermon that I did the first part of two weeks ago, and um, you can decide for yourself if that was planned or not. Um, two weeks ago, I, w I led us through a reflection on what's happened in our church together over the last eight years or so, and I said I wanted to, re to reflect on what's happened, and then I wanted to review what we've believed together to try to see that happen. And so... Um, I talked about all these things for like 35 minutes. So if you want to hear individually all the things that are going on in our church that have been happening these last eight years that are exciting, go back two weeks ago and listen to that recording and you'll probably find it encouraging. Um, and there's a lot of stuff I didn't mention. For example, I didn't talk about any divine healings in that service. Um, just a couple weeks ago, I, this is, I just, I know this is kind of weird. So like I just did a perfunctory visit to Mike Beresford because he was had a back infection that was fairly threatening and that is very difficult to treat. And so John and I just went over to visit him, had no intention of him being healed. And we prayed for him to be healed because that's what you're supposed to pray for people to be healed. That's what the Bible says, right? And he went to his doctor and his doctor said, um, you haven't received treatment. These, at your age, um, only in children are these viral. They're, at your age, they're all bacterial, and they don't go away. Sometimes they don't even go away with treatment, and yours is gone, and your swelling is way down, and so I don't—you're you're getting better, and I can't explain this because we haven't done any of the treatment you absolutely would require. And so that—I mean, that, like, that was just part of Thursday a couple weeks ago. You know, and so—yeah, and I mean— 
five, five years ago, you know, Rachel Kutzinger was going to have to have her skull cut open, and we prayed for her, and she got healed. I mean, like, there have been some really great things, and like, I didn't even mention that. There's tons of stuff we didn't talk about, but, but what I tried to paint a picture of is for all the bad that's happening, there's always bad that's happening, there's some amazing good things that have been happening. This has been a great run. I never thought when I came here from Florida and said goodbye to 10 minutes to dolphins and scuba spear fishing and the like the, the drudgery of Wisconsin winters that I'd ever be happy again. And then I got here and it, it's, it's been a great eight years. It's been a hard eight years. Um, but it's been a great eight years in terms of what God has done where I could, even letting us see some of it. Because there's so much God does that you will never see until heaven. And, and, but there's a lot of stuff you get to see. And, and so one of the things that I've been looking at, and you'll hear a lot about this if you come to the Festival of Booths camping trip, is that there is nothing that is spiritually more dangerous than any kind of prosperity. Human beings spiritually tend to do much better in suffering than they do in prosperity. There's this whole—there's a section in, at the very end of the Torah, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses is about to die and the people of Israel are about to go into the promised land, and they're going to receive the gift of this land of inheritance and that's flowing with milk and honey. And, and he says, listen, you're going to go into the land, and you're going to take it, and you're going to have houses that you didn't build, and wells you didn't dig, and, and cr the crops are going to grow, and you're going you're to eat your fill of the land and be satisfied. Then do you know what he says right after that? This is in chapter 31. Read it this afternoon if you never read it. He says, and in those days you will surely turn aside and worship idols. <laughs> after everything that God, God will do all these things for you, he'll do everything for you. And at the peak of receiving everything he's done for you, of all the goods that he's laid out in front of you, at that moment, you will want all the stuff he gets. Now, this is, Moses doesn't say this. I'm psychologizing it, okay? You'll have all the benefits, and what will happen is you'll no longer want to stomach the restrictions. You won't want to receive all the blessings of God the way God has delivered them to you. And so because you have the blessings in hand, what you'll say is, I don't have to do this stuff. And you'll turn your faith to other things that pledge prosperity to you, that demand nothing of you, and let you do whatever you want and call it good. And what happens is none of that can actually produce blessing, and your lives will be destroyed by it. And then he sings one of the longest songs in the Bible about all the things that God has done for them, so that they would remember and not forget. And so that they would be faithful and not turn aside to idols. There's so many places in the Bible that, where God says, you're going to do this terrible thing. And the point of him saying that is not to create a self-fulfilling prophecy so that because somebody says that you're going to do something bad, you do something bad. He says, you're going to do it. So you be like, I'm not going to do that. The whole purpose of him saying, you're going to do this. And so you go like, I'm, no, I'm not. And I'm going to do whatever it takes so that that's not true of me. Right? And listen, if somebody's ever said to you that you're never going to amount to every, anything— even if they said it to destroy you, take it like as if God had—God would have said something like that. Because, as, because if God would have said it, it would be because he wanted you to amount to everything you could possibly ever be. Right? And so, as a pastor, as a person who—a huge part of my job is the spiritual vigilance over the people for whom I have spiritual responsibility, is to recognize that it is in moments of prosperity— that we are spiritually and morally most at danger. You may not know this, but the last eight years of High Point has kind of been, as business people say, you know, up and to the right. You know, like everything you can measure has been good. It's been so great, right? But I don't know if you know this, most two-thirds of this church or more has come in the last eight years, and you don't even know, some of you, that the ten years before that were a precipitous decline. 
because of all kinds of things that happened, including a lot of pride, is what I, I was told over and over again when I got here. And I don't know if you know this, but the 10 years before that, really, the, really more like the 19 years before that, it was like a really great expansion. People coming to faith, going out into missions globally, doing all kinds of amazing things. And so it's been like this, like for 10 years or so, and then like this, and now it's been like this for eight years. And you, listen, I would just as soon skip the next this. Like we should just, just skip it. Let's just kind of go like this, right? And you can see some organizations, most organizations go like this, right? They, they're excited about stuff, and then they bureaucratize everything, and then they kind of lose their vision. They don't want to fight with people, their new competitors, and they just kind of die. And so every organization has to go like this, and right when they realize they're getting stuck, right when they realize that like they've kind of lost their vision, they have to renew their vision. It's the only chance is at that moment where there's prosperity and you're kind of getting comfortable and you're kind of losing your hunger and you feel fine and you've eaten the fill of the land, it's at that moment where you have to say, wait! We need to renew our vision right now. Right now. Okay, and, and, and when I say vision, I don't mean some new building or we're going to like do this big thing in Madison. I mean our vision for being a people who belong to Jesus. That's what I mean by that, okay? And so— all the stuff we have to do is ordinary stuff. It's like laying tile every day. It's making a decision to belong to Jesus and to follow Jesus in a way that we can, we, in a way we can do it together. And so having reflected on all, a lot of things that God has done after the last eight years, what I think we need to do is we need to go back and review that w which we've been trying to learn from the scriptures about Jesus over the last couple of years. I've been saying the same thing for eight years in as many different ways as I possibly could, and then I concentrated it even more in the last two years. Because one of the things we've said over and over again is this, that you—listen, you only possess what you've mastered. Like, you, you don't even possess what bores you. You only possess what you have mastered, especially under stress. Because under stress, all you've got are your reactions. And so, whatever you want to do in your reactions, you better have so deep in you that when you get punched, this is what comes out. Life is going to cut you and you're going to bleed something. Whatever is the lifeblood that's pulsing through your veins, whatever your deepest identity is, what's going to come out when you bleed, and you can make it beauty, or you can make—or it will be something terrible. And so, I believe that Whenever there are good moments, we need to go deeper in the thing. We need to—there's one, there's one church in Revelation where Jesus says to them, he says, listen, you started out great, and you've done great things, and you've stood with other people that wouldn't stand, and you're actually a great church, and I love you, but listen, you have forgotten your first love. Look, that church was apparently still at its, at its peak. It was great. Everybody around them looked at that church and was like, that church is a great church. Right? Um, Mike Beresford did a funeral recently, and some of the funeral homes said, listen, I'm so glad that you came here because, like, we know, we've heard, we're in this community, we know whoever comes from High Point Church is going to believe the gospel. They're going to trust the gospel, they're going to trust Jesus, they're going to trust the Bible, and they're going to be loving. And I was like, I want to cry. <laughs> you really think that's our reputation? Right? That's so great. And it's at that moment where things are most, you have to be most careful. Because guess what happens when you hear that? Self-righteousness rushes in like a flood, like a August—apparently in August, Wisconsin rain, right? Okay, so one of the passages we've gone to a number of times is this one in Romans 12, 1 and 2, because it's a great summary of what it means to be belong to Jesus. He says, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy—that is, what he's done for you in Christ— 
to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So from that passage, I want to basically say there's two things that I want to summarize. That if you understood this summary and you clung to this summary, I think that it would enormously help you over the next 10 years of your life. Maybe forever, I don't know. But let's, let's have a shorter period of time in front of us. And that is, I believe that we need to have a Christ-centered identity. That is, we need to become people of spiritual substance in Christ. And two, we need to actively, continually foster a Christ-centered mentality. Right? And I believe that those are related to each other. You, you don't have a shot at having a Christ-centered mentality if you don't have a Christ-centered identity. And if you don't constantly renew your Christ-centered identity by having a Christ-centered mentality, your Christ-centered identity will erode and you'll forget it. One of the things you need to remember is this. There are a lot of people who talk about how, um, you know, you should pray right when you get up in the morning. You might even have your personal devotional time, like read the Bible and journal a little bit about maybe, or think about what you read and then pray a little bit right when you get up in the morning. And, and here's why people do that. They don't do it so they can be spiritually better than you. Well, most of them. If they think they're spiritually better than you, then they're not, right, by definition. The reason people do it is because human beings are basically amnesiacs. Like, we forget who we are constantly. Okay? And so when you wake up in the morning, you're not going to automatically remember who you are in Christ. You're not going to remember that no matter what lays in front of your day, God has given you the capacity for joy. To embrace the ordinary roles and responsibilities of your life with joy, knowing you're walking in His will and doing His work and displaying the character of Jesus. Even in your cancer. Understand? It's, that's who you are. You belong, and you belong to Christ, and you have an eternity laid before in Him, and you're storing up treasure in heaven, even if you have nothing on earth. And like, that is who you are. And if that's, if you know that's who you are, it completely changes who you think you are in the day. It'll completely change your mindset if that's your identity. But you have to do a certain kind of work of renewing it by stopping and remembering. That's why God has all the festivals, to stop and remember throughout the year. It's one of the reasons why he demands that his people come together and worship together in a gathered church like this. So that we, weekly, you remember. It's one of the reasons why it says in the book of Deuteronomy to talk with your kids, whether you're sitting down or walking or wherever you're going, talk with them about all the things I'm telling you. Why? Because then if you teach your kids, then at least you'll remember, right? Even if they don't listen. You should keep telling them even when they're teenagers, right? Because then at least you'll remember. And they're hearing more than you think, right? So they say. I'll tell you when my kids are 20, you know? Okay, so let's look at the first one, Christ-centered identity. And you can see both of these in the passage, right? This is who you are. In view of God's mercy, coming to Jesus, this is what you are. You're a living sacrifice. You're meant to be holy and pleasing to God. That's your spiritual act of worship. That's your life as a Christian. To give your life as an act of worship to God, and you're a living sacrifice meant to please Him. That's your identity, right? And if you're—this is your identity. And in that identity, you're no longer conformed to the pattern of this world but your mind is transformed in Christ, then you'll have the right mentality. You'll be able to look at everything in your life and be able to test it and approve it according to God's will. You'll be able to take anything in your life with your mentality and say, here's God's will. How does it match up? Based on what God thinks is good, true, and beautiful, what he finds good, pleasing, and perfect, how does this match up? And therefore, how should I relate to it? Right? And it'll be relatively clear if your mind is transformed and not conformed. And then you'll be able to have the right mentality, and you'll know what to do in every moment. You'll know what exerting faith will look like. Even if you don't know what to do, you'll know the sort of thing to do. Does that make sense? Okay, so first let's talk about Christ-centered identity. A number of you have heard me say this before. It is not enough 
to think merely positively about your identity or almost anything that you have to conceptualize. Human beings are much more strongly motivated by the negative, right? That's why when people get married, that's why there's so many attack ads politically. Why are there so many attack ads? Because we have fast, visceral, intense feelings to negativity, right? That's why. It pays. Twitter wouldn't even be a business, right, if we were all positive creatures, right? And it's one of the reasons why when people first get married oftentimes, what they, what they naturally, without even thinking about, they try, to emoti- they try to motivate each other with guilt. They'll be like, you disappointed me, or I don't like, I just don't like, if you were a good husband, you'd do the blah, blah, blah. Until finally, like, people start getting angry enough that they're like, okay, we need a different strategy here. But that's very common, and it's because we all implicitly know that that's very motivating, right? This person's in love with me, right? I love them. If I express my displeasure and disapproval of them, it'll be very motivating for them because they'll feel guilty, because guilt is a very motivating thing until you, like, decide you hate it and, like, harden your heart against it, right? And so you need to both think about most things, both positively and negatively, okay? Negatively, what it means to be in Christ is not worldliness. You do not belong to the Jesus-denying cultural structures of this world anymore, okay? And you are not meant to be captured by them or shaped by them or conformed to them. And, and that's a very long fight because you'll fight one direction, then you'll fall in the other direction, right? And you have to keep dealing with the fact that there are many worldlinesses that can capture and conform your mind, and you have to reject all of them, right? And then secondly, you belong to Christ. The most common way to describe what it, what it means to a human being that they believe in and are known by and know Jesus is just this prepositional phrase, in Christ. It's the most common reference in the whole Bible, and it simply means this. If I could create a sphere of everything that is in Jesus, all of his goodness, all of his beauty, all of his glory, his whole future, everything he gives, everything, all of that is Christ, and when you come to Christ, you are in that. You're an heir to the forever family. You are approved of in Christ. You're forgiven. You have a purpose. You're secure. Everything that is in Christ is yours. Everything. Because you're in union with him, Scripture says. Everything that's yours is his, and everything that's his is yours. Right? And that's your identity. Your identity is to be in Christ and to not be of the world. Right? So there's, there's three precepts to think about in relationship to this that we've covered over the last couple of years. The first is— you have, there's two. The first two you have to, is something you have to believe. Because remember, the Christian faith is rooted in something called faith. You have to start with what you believe. And there's a couple things you have to believe. And the first thing you have to believe is, is that worldliness is what's choking and blinding us, not Jesus. And secondly, you have to believe that God has given us everything we need to pursue godliness. And then you have to pursue. Then you have to act. You have to pursue the four marks of godliness through the four practices of discipleship, which I'll show you, but those are explained in the book Substance that you can get a copy of here and that we read together last year. So let's go through these quickly. So the first thing is this. A huge percentage of Christians feel like their faith isn't working. They feel like they feel anxious. They feel, they feel gloomy or a certain kind of depression that isn't the clinical kind. It's the like slowly creeping kind. They, um, 
They feel like their faith isn't working. They feel like the, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Quote of Jesus must have been a misquote, you know? And they really feel like Jesus is either demanding something unacceptable or is letting them down. And they think that the—and they think slowly that the problem is with Jesus. And what Jesus actually said is, you're going to feel that way and that it isn't him. Right? He says it this way in— in Matthew's Gospel. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, in one, in one sense, that's a, just about storing your treasure in heaven. In another sense, that's about your anxieties and your gloom. Right? Because everything that is not, in a sense, rooted in heaven is vulnerable. Your life, all of your belongings— most of your standing and your approval for others, anything that you have that comforts you, like almost everything that you naturally have as part of life in this world is vulnerable. And you feel like it's vulnerable, and the reason you feel like it's vulnerable is because it is. Right? It's, if you don't, if you are not rooted in your identity in something that is in heaven, it is, it is any wonder that we are not all racked with anxiety every moment. The, cra the, the people who are so anxious they have to take medicine, they're, they're the, they are the sane ones. Do you understand? Because life is terrifying and everything is vulnerable. And unless in Christ you recognize that you are seated with Christ, with God, that, that, that everything in this world is going to be either eaten by moths or stolen by thieves, including your reputation and your belongings and your very life and your health and your good name, then you will be terrified all the time. And you'll think as a Christian you shouldn't be terrified all the time, and you'll be angry at Jesus, and you shouldn't be angry at Jesus. He's not doing that, right? And then he goes on to say that in terms of our spiritual sight, is, it, we can be very confused. He says— the eye, the eye is the lamp of the body, right? So, right, so this question of where our treasure is, he says, listen, think about it this way. The eye is the lamp of the body, right? If your eyes are good, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Right, so think about it this way. Imagine you're in a room, and it's basically pitch black. And you're trying to see your way around. You're not familiar with it. And so you have a flashlight, and the flashlight is basically— like your attitude and your way of seeing the world, okay? Except, like, you're, you, it's like an antimatter flashlight. Like, it, it produces impenetrable darkness. And so it's, it's pitch black and you can't see anything. And so you turn on your flashlight that produces impenetrable darkness to help you. And what you get is no help. You're twice buried in impenetrable darkness. You see nothing. And Jesus is saying, listen— if your eye, if your attitude, if the way you see the world is not enlightened by what the world is really like and what is passing away and what isn't passing away and who should be your master and like what your life is for and what really matters and if you don't, if your eye isn't good in that sense, if it doesn't see clearly, then your eye is trying to fix darkness by taking in darkness. You'll be blind. And you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, if you feel blind— if you feel like you keep trying stuff that doesn't work, he's saying he's actually not the problem. Here's what he says the problem is. The next line. No one can have two masters because you will hate one and love the other. Now, he—the Bible teaches that we should hate sin and worldliness, especially in ourselves— 
because we want to expel it with all power from our own person. But he's, he's not teaching you to hate anything actually in this verse. What he's saying is, is that human hate is inevitable when you try to do two things that cannot be done. Right? I see this more in men with women, but I think it's universal between the sexes. That people who work really hard and are trying to accomplish something, and they feel like they're doing all that they can, and then someone or something else comes in and asks more of them. Right? The response is often anger. Right? Why? Because you're being asked to do something that isn't possible. Right? It's just unreasonable. You can't do everything. I remember one time I was working on an Easter. It was like Easter, which is like tax season for pastors, right? It's a wonderful holiday, but like for us, it's about the resurrection, but for God's sakes, it's very difficult. And so like we're like, I'm like cramming all this stuff, and I was trying to make all these. We had nine services throughout the city, and like I'm trying to make it all work, and I'm working on my sermon, and my computer just like crashes on me, right? And won't get better. And like I'm not, I'm not normally given to big outbursts of anger, Right? I have people at, more often ask me, why aren't you getting angry, right? And I just felt so angry. I mean, I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I walked out of my office for a little bit, just kind of walked around. But I was so angry. And I realized why it was. is because I was functioning, because I was so busy, I was functioning at 100%. And I needed my computer to work, for heaven's sakes, and it wasn't working. And it made the thing I was trying to do impossible. What I was asking of myself, what I felt like God was asking of me, what I felt like my church was asking for me was not now possible. And my response to that was anger. So angry. And here's the thing. Serving two masters is impossible. It's impossible. You can't make worldliness and Jesus happy. You can't make them both happy. They want opposite things. They believe opposite things. They're going in opposite directions. It's like standing on two boats that have different headings. It's not going to work out. And so what's going to happen is it's going to make you angry. And when it makes you angry, you're going to hate one of the parties that is asking something unreasonable from you. And you will assign that to one of those two parties. Right? So if your boss is running you like crazy, and then your wife asks you to do something, and between those two things it's too much, you're going to get mad at one of those two people. Right? Often it's your wife, which is probably misguided, right? But you're going to get angry at one of those two people because you're going to—it's just—you've you got to get angry at one of your two masters, right? And Jesus is like, here's who you're going to get angry at. You're going to get angry at Jesus because you love worldliness. You love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. You want that master to be happy. That master is your mistress. You're tired of Jesus, right? Even though Jesus gives you everything. And so you'll—when you get pulled apart and you, you get upset and hatred rises like it must, you must assign that hatred to someone and you will assign it to Jesus. Right? And there's only—and Jesus only gives like one way out of this, right? If you read a few verses later, he says, this is how the passage ends. Right? Because serving two masters creates a lot of anxiety. So the next five or six verses are about anxiety and worry and how everybody's worried all the time about everything. You just don't really need to be worried about everything. And he says this, so don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And then so here's what he says you have to do. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, this is really important because in American evangelicalism, as Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christianity, um, we, we tend to say that you should seek God. Or we might go further and say you should seek God's presence. 
That's fairly common. And I'm not against charismatic whatevers, right? I think it's great. Um, but there can be a misconception about what you're really seeking. What Jesus says to seek here is not to seek something that feels like God's presence. He's not feeling, he's not saying seek an experience of feeling like God is present. That's not what he's saying. He says you need to seek God's kingdom. That is his rule, the way he rules. And his righteousness. That is what God believes is good and what God calls into being in the world by us obeying him morally. Those are the two things you seek. Are you seeking God's presence? Yes. Metaphorically and indirectly and all of that. And will you sometimes feel God's manifest presence? Yeah, I do. I think so. Some of you have felt that. I think I've felt it before. But like, you know, when, when John and I were praying for Mike, when he was apparently busy getting healed on the cellular level, none of us felt anything other than mild embarrassment. Right? You don't— but, but you can, you, without any kind of feeling or like existential mystical success, you can seek objectively what God says. Seek this. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. If you seek those things, you don't have time to seek the world. You don't, you can't seek the world if you're really seeking God's kingdom and God's righteousness. It's hard to lie to yourself. If you're really giving your heart and mind and soul to knowing God and loving him and seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, it's very hard to be like, oh, and I'm going to do this thing that he's really against, right? Which leads us to the second thing, is, is that even possible? Because I think a lot of people struggle with the idea, when you say God's goal for you is godliness, that's terrifying for one of two reasons. Either it's terrifying because you think that it's absolutely unattainable. Like you're just, you're a sinner, you're a terrible person, you can't even be nice to your spouse, how are you going to be like Jesus? Right? Which is, and if you feel that way, that's a, probably an accurate thought, right? And then secondly, you might think, that's just going to make a self-righteous jerk out of me. Like if I think that I'm godly, I'm going to persuade myself that I'm being successful, and I'm going to then think other people are not being successful in doing that or don't care about it, and I'm better than them because I'm both successful and I care about the right things, and it's going to make us all horrifically self-righteous. And the reason you think that is because that does happen. A lot of people that talk about godliness— actually become and exhibit self-righteousness and pride, right? Okay, that's great. There's a lot of football teams that try to be good and are terrible. That doesn't mean you can't win games, okay? Like, there are, there are all kinds of things worth pursuing that other people say they're pursuing and get the opposite of what you're supposed to get. That doesn't mean that the pursuit isn't worthwhile, right? There's a lot of people that go hiking and they get nothing but blisters, but that doesn't mean you can't climb a 14er. Right? And Jesus unequivocally says that his mission for us is godliness. And he explicitly says in the Bible over and over that he's given us everything we need. So wherever you think you are, however good or bad you think you are, whatever resources you do or don't think you have, Jesus has said, whatever you require, everything you need for godliness, you have. It's kind of like you're going on a trek and somebody hands you a backpack at the outfitters and you're like, what's in the backpack? And they just go, just everything you need. And you put it on because they're the professional, and you go out there and you just know everything you're going to need on the hike is in the pack. And you don't even really know what it is. But you figure there's probably a can stove and some matches and hopefully some food. Right? And Jesus is saying, here you go. What's in there? Just everything you need. And you have to believe that. You have to believe that it is not Jesus, but worldliness that is choking you and blinding you and hurting you. And you have to believe that in Christ, God has given you everything you need to pursue godliness, right? He says, he says, 
His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And then it explains, therefore, what you're to pursue because of everything Jesus has done for you is to add to your faith everything. That you should make every effort personally. That you should personally strive to add to your faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. That is, you're supposed to do that. You don't pray and say, God, make me the next thing. No, no, no. If you have faith, and that's about it, (laughs) then you look to the scriptures, and you look to other believers, and you attend to preaching, and you do what's necessary to find out what goodness is, and you add that to your life, and you do it methodically, and you have people hold you accountable, and you try to figure out what's good, even before you have much knowledge, because goodness actually precedes knowledge. You'd be like, well, don't you have to know that? No, listen. If you do not make a commitment to the truth and to to goodness— in your heart, you will never accept true knowledge. Right? That's why we can't agree on anything. We think it's like, well, I'll just quote more studies. It's not quoting more studies. You can write another blog. People are not going to agree with it. Because knowledge has a moral foundation. It's called epistemic virtue. You have to be virtuous in how you know things. You have to be 100% committed to the truth to find it. And nobody is. That's why you have to add to faith, goodness, and then to goodness, knowledge. And then you'll realize you can't do any of the things you know and your knowledge is useless. To which then you add self-control. And then you realize you're going to have to do it for 50 years. So you need perseverance. And then you realize if you really want to love people, which is the goal, you have to holistically do all the goods in knowledge with self-control and perseverance. That is, you need godliness. You need to bring it all together. And then you'll actually know what love is to be really just kind to other people. Forget loving. And then love. You see, the the point is, is that God's vision—so like, you know, one of the things I'm doing with the elders is trying to like focus again on a vision for our church, right? We, we, We need to renew our vision again, and so it's really easy to say, well, here's our vision. Let's do this, or let's be this kind of church, or let's partner with those schools, or let's do the thing this, or the evangelism so and so, or let's all relocate to northern Brazil, or like what, you know, whatever, right? And we will come up with certain things we'll try to do as a particular vision for High Point Church. Right? But what is God's vision? Right? And and those of you who know about the Great Commission, what God really—what Jesus commissioned his church to do is to make disciples of all nations. And that sounds really difficult because there's some nations that if you go there to try to make disciples, they might kill you. And so that sounds like the most problematic phrase in the Great Commission, the all nations. It's not the most problematic phrase or word. You know the most problematic word in the Great Commission is? The word everything. Because it says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Right? You want to know why we haven't gone to all the nations? You know why High Point Church hasn't gone to all the nations? We have not yet truly endeavored to obey everything that he's commanded us. And I endeavor, I believe, that if in seeking godliness, we truly decide as a people together, and as individuals, each one of us, that we are not going to like Jesus and hope he makes our life good, but we are going to, as his disciples, unconditionally learn how to obey everything that he's commanded us. We will go to all the nations. And to our neighbors, and we will actually love our families, and all of it. Because Jesus' vision for the church is is that a group of people who come come to believe in him and become his disciples 
would make more disciples, and themselves and those they make disciples, they would teach to obey everything that he's commanded. That is, they would grow in godliness. His vision for the church is that you and I would be godly. That's his vision. Everything else is particular applications. Do you understand? And so the language sometimes we use for this is gracious striving. We work as hard as we can, but we know we can't do anything without God's help. And so if we succeed, we have joy, but we don't have pride. We actually have humility because God has been so gracious to give us success. Or we talk about failing in the right direction because you're never really successful. Remember, it says in First Peter, Second Peter 1, it says, if you have these qualities, say it with me, if you have these qualities in increasing measure, right? Not in complete perfection. An increasing measure. What does Paul say to Timothy? Let everybody see your— I heard over here. Let everybody see your progress. Your progress, right? Like if people ask me, like, Nick, what do you, what do you think people see in you? What are you hoping people see in you over the last eight years? I would say, not that I'm this great godly man. Hopefully they, if they've been around since 2010, hopefully they'll think of who I was in 2010, and they'll think about who I am now. And they'll say, there's been progress. He's progressed. I think he loves Jesus for real because he's, he's grown. And that's my goal for the next eight years. Not that I'll be this perfect man, right? My goal is, is that in eight years from now, you'd look at me as your pastor and be like, he's progressed. And that's inspired me to progress. And hopefully my progress has inspired his progress. And if we all have these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive or unfruitful in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And then we've talked about this, and I'm not going to spend time talking about this now because I want to get to the next thing. That the, the way we pursue these things is we, we pursue what the Bible says we're meant to be, which is we're meant to sacrificially love others. We're meant to have the mind of Christ, to have our mind renewed toward Christ. We're meant to be the kind of people that are so virtuous we can be free. And we're meant to be the kind of people that keep in step with the Spirit each day of our life. And that's only going to happen if we really pursue recognizing that our lives are to be ordinary, though not typical. Your life is going to be full of repetitions and responsibilities and roles, and your job is not to escape them. Your job is to embrace them. You'll be like, well, everybody will exploit me. That's what your life is for. Your life is for you to be exploited voluntarily for the good of others. That's why involuntary exploitation is so bad. Not because your life isn't to be exploited. Your, your life is a burning candle. You are an expiring resource. Okay? You are meant to be spent. And it is meant to be that you choose that you are going to embrace certain roles and responsibilities and your life is going to be exploited, meaning your life is going to be lost for the fruits of it to be given to others, right? I mean, how, how can you be a man in this world as a worker and have a family and not get that and be happy? You're going to go out and work and earn money and the, your family is going to spend all of it, right? Like you'll get an allowance of like $50 a month. You'll make like a few thousand dollars every two weeks or something like that if you're, if you're lucky. And like you'll, you'll get like a like fifty dollars because your kids need all this stuff and your wife and your house and your hospitality and the church and blah, 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 blah. Right? There's a lot of men. They're just not going to get married now. She's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm going to make as much money as I can and I'm going to have the best Xbox and I'm going to do this. See, that's the idea. Our, our lives, my life exists to be exploited by my four children and my wife and my church and my friends and my neighborhood and my society. That's what I'm for. 
but I voluntarily enter into that as a steward. It's not supposed to be stolen from me. It's not a slavery. It's a citizenship. Does that make sense? And that's part of embracing roles and responsibilities, and most of those are repetitive. And if you can't embrace the ordinary, you can't embrace godliness, because godliness is like land tiles, man. You, gotta, you do the same thing. You build over time. Whether it's the work of godliness, the works God has called you to do, or whether it's the character transformation. It's all land bricks, right? All right, I got to move on. There's more I'd like to say about all that. So the second thing is to have a Christ-centered mentality. It's one thing to think that you know who you are. It's another thing to reset that mentality constantly and to really have that in your mind, your mind focused in that way all the time. Human beings terribly lack focus. But the only way you can experience divine joy consistently is if you are in the mindset that is Christ-centered as a Christian. Because we embrace so much sacrifice as part of our life in Christ, that if we don't see the sacrificing as a joyous thing, if we don't, if we're not renewed in our dying by the mindset we have about life, you're just going to feel like you're dying all the time. You're going to feel like your life is just constantly being ruined rather than being renewed by the work of it and the labor of it. It's no longer toil, even though it's labor, right? And so that's rooted in understanding that the joy of God is our strength, right? And so the Apostle Paul says, be joyful always, that that's a work of mind that you can do. It's a command. And the means of that is by hope, right? Be joyful in hope, he says in the book of Romans. And it's necessary because love, you see, we always want to, we all want to believe romantically that love is easy, that if you love somebody, that everything you do with them is easy. And if you think that, then you're very young or you've never loved anybody or both. Okay? Or maybe you just haven't loved anybody very long. But love is enormously difficult, and it takes an enormous amount of strength. Right? And so in Nehemiah, at one of the worst and most difficult times of the people of God, Nehemiah says, listen, you need to be happy in God because the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you can't be happy in God, you cannot do any of the things love demands. Right? Now, this might be a little bit complicated, um, but it's not as complicated as maybe it looks at first, okay? So, um, actually, I can make this simpler. Maybe, maybe, you'll, maybe you'll like this better. Do you like that better? It's the same thing. You like that better? So, okay, the other way is how it is in my brain. This is how I've simplified it for you. Okay. Right? So, so if you start with your identity in Christ, then my identity is in Christ and my escape from worldliness. I'm no longer conformed to this world. I am participating in the divine nature and escaping the corruption that is in the world, both the positive and the negative, right? That will lead you to exert faith. How do you exert faith? Well, one, faith and assurance. You are redeemed by Christ. Right? It says in 1 John 3, 16 to 18, he says, this is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. That we love in work and in truth. Right? That if we love others and we love God and we, we, we step forward honestly in that faith, that the place we human beings should feel the most uncomfortable is in the presence of God. Okay? Now, that's where human beings should feel the most uncomfortable naturally because we're sinners. And we shouldn't be because we bear the divine image. 
right? And so we enter into that presence, and the most valuable thing there could possibly be, the most assuring thing that there could possibly be, is something that sets our heart at rest under the doom of the presence of the glorious God, and turns it into a, a moment of assurance and love. And only the death and resurrection of Jesus can do that, and that can only be taken into our lives by faith, but it has to be real faith, and so the only way you can know it's real faith is if it does something in you. That is, that you're willing to step forward and act and be truthful, right? And he says, if we love in action and in truth, we can know that God's grace is working in us, which means our faith is real, which means our hearts can be set at rest in his presence, even if our own heart is yelling at us. That is, God wants you to have, be assured. He wants you to know you're set right with him. He wants you to be at peace because you'll never be able to turn your life out towards meaning if you're still struggling with issues of security. Do you understand? And most of us as Americans, we're terribly insecure people. Terribly insecure people for all kinds of reasons. And you, you can't really focus on loving others and sacrificing and living for the good of others and know what your life is for and living out that meaning. Well, see, if you feel insecure, you need assurance from others, and so you will suck it out of other people's lives vampirically and ruin them. Right? Men enjoying d dating women for years and not marrying them is an example of that. Right? I've got like a six-month rule if you're over 22 years old. If you're 22 or older, and you're a guy, you date a girl for six months, and you make a call. Or you have a very serious conversation with a pastor, or her dad should beat you up, okay? Because you're, you're grown. You should be able to sort it out, okay? Otherwise, you're just enjoying her, and that's not what she's for, right? And this, I've seen it the other way, too. Though, like, I'm, the woman's like, I'm going to get through my graduate's PhD, blah, 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 right? That's why you're not supposed to be sleeping together, because all those hormones will drive you to make decisions, Okay? That was an aside. The point is, <laughs> but you see, the, the point is, is that if you don't exist in assurance, you exist in insecurity. And when you exist in insecurity, you are a vampire sucking the life out of others so that you can feel secure. It is only when you actually have the identity of Christ that you are fully assured in Christ. You are his, and he is yours, and you are in all that is in Christ, and all that you could ever want you have, and anything that you would cling to is going to be moth, rust, stolen. That you can be free, and only when you're free can you turn to meaning, and only when you can turn to meaning can you live in the will of God. Can you have faith, right? And then negatively, if you know the Bible says that you're prone to wander, especially in your greatest successes, and that you are naturally a spiritual adulterer, and that like you, you do not want to obey God, and you love sin and worldliness, and that's in you, and you, you've got to kill that thing, right? It'll be, there'll be humility, because in your assurance— that assurance won't create a sense of like, well, I don't have to do anything now. I'm assured. There will be this sense of vigilance that'll rise up out of your humility because you'll be like, I can't take this for granted. All of this grace, all that's good that's happened to me should do something in me. I should, I got to do something with it. And so positively, assurance will lead you to earnestness, to want to, to want to like give your life to God and to others and to love and to truth and to good things to the good, but your humility will drive you to vigilance because you'll want to, you'll want to keep back evil. And so in you will be this drive through assurance to work for the good and through humility to push back evil. And it'll create this beautiful relationship. Now you might be thinking, okay, Nick, this is, this is interesting theology. I thought this point was about joy somehow. 
And I feel like the theme this year was about joy, and I don't feel like we've talked about joy that much. I feel like we've talked about godliness and like renewal of our minds and all the different themes of Luke, and like I just thought you were going to say joy more, right? Okay, listen. Who has actually seen the original Karate Kid? The original, like the, from the 80s with the cute boy with the dark hair? Okay. Um, do you remember the part where like he had to wash all those cars and paint the fence and like do all that stuff? And he's like, I'm not learning any karate. I'm going to paint the fence. And the guy's like, okay, do the motions. And he like, he starts doing it. He shows him that he's been teaching him every block that there is in martial arts, right? And like in two minutes, it all comes in. He's like, oh, I can do this, right? Okay. I, like, okay, I'm not Mr. Miyagi, but like just hang with me for a second, okay? <laughs> I have been teaching you all of the blocks for spiritual joy. You just got to make the connection, Okay. Just make the connection. Okay, so here's some of them. So, it is a joyful thing to be loved, assuredly, by God. And the more you do business with what it means to be in Christ, and to have faith, and to reject worldliness, and to receive God's full assurance, the more you walk into absolute, unconditional, fully given divine love that you know that you have, and you know you've been given, and you can sense its certainty, and you walk in its truth, and it is enormously helpful to be securely loved by someone so loving, who makes such extravagant promises in his love. That would be enough if that was the only joy. That would be, that'd be a lot. You would be overpaid, way overcompensated for any sacrifice, right? That's just one little thing, right? And then earnestness, for example. Like if, if you in your assurance are driven to earnestness to do the good, that earnestness leads you to be not just to do the good, but to like it. So there's so many things, goods you must do. You gotta tuck in the stupid kid. You gotta read to him. You gotta make him take baths. You've gotta like fix your house. You gotta mow the lawn. You gotta listen to people when they talk. You've gotta do all kinds. You gotta do your job. You gotta do all kinds of things that really are supposed to enrich the lives of others. And you have to do them morally. You are for that. And you're like, what's well, exploiting my life? That's what your life is for. But if assurance leads you to earnestness to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness and to do it, you will start to like it all. That's one of the hardest things. It's one of the hardest things in spiritual life. You'll know that you're being formed in Christ, not when you go to Zimbabwe to be a missionary, though you should do that. That'd be great. You will know when you wash the dishes happy. You know when you'll be glad to argue with your spouse. Because the work of agreement must be hashed out. Right? Like that's when you know something great is happening in you. And Christ is doing it. Which leads you back to the other joy, right? And then humility, like if humility happens in you, real humility, right? You'll be self-forgetful. You won't be so self-involved. You won't feel as insecure. You'll be naturally thankful instead of entitled. Which means anything pleases you. Like, have you seen people come together and they, somebody cracks some idiotic joke that is not remotely funny, right? That's the beauty of an intergenerational church, right? Like, we've all seen the young people make jokes that are stupid, and you young people have seen the old people crack jokes that are idiotic. Like, you just don't see how they're remotely funny, and they're all just laughing at it, and you're like, that's not even a good joke. It's not even structured properly. Here's why. <laughs> Here's why. Because when you like someone just because they're there, and you're not thinking about where you are in the conversation. Are you up or are you down? And they're just another human. And, you're, and like anything, anything pleases you. If a good friend makes a joke, another person could have made that joke. You would have gotten angry that it was so dumb. 
But your friend makes a joke and you laugh. Why? Because anything they do pleases you. Because your friends and you're self-forgetful and you're not really fighting and competing with him. And like, they're in, there's love. And the moment that there's love, everything pleases you. Right? That's why when you are infatuated with somebody and you like everything about them you love and then you get married and a bunch of stuff annoys you, right? It's because when you were most infatuated, you were pleased by everything. And that was hormonal. But there is a spiritual, moral way of that happening where you're pleased with everything and it doesn't wear off. It gets stronger. And then even in vigilance, you're like, vigilance sounds like so military. It's like you're going to fight the blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay. Like, that's true. It is, it's, it, it is a soldierly, you have to become a dangerous person. Listen, almost everything in your life that you enjoy, some dangerous person watches over. Right? Probably somebody you complain about. But some dangerous person watches over everything in your life that you have that somebody isn't coming and taking. And that's what you have to be over your own spirituality. Right? I can't be, I can't be the guard. I'm like the head guard here for spiritual vigilance, but we're all guards and you have to be the main guard over your own heart. And, but here's the thing. Do you know what soldiers do is they, they're supposed to administer justice and maintain peace. What's better than that? What's better than as a father or a mother or a leader? Listen, I know people want to be leaders. Like there's all kinds of people who want to be leaders. Young people. Okay. Being a leader is not fun. Okay? It is, you don't want to be a leader. You want to be a hobbit, like in Hobbiton, like eating rolls and drinking pints of beer and be like relatively chubby and like, look at that pig. That's the life you want, okay? The life of peace and security and relative justice. You don't want to be like Gondor fighting back the orcs so that they can grow like pipeweed, okay? That's not the job you want. And that's what leadership is and that's what being a soldier is and that's what vigilance is all about. But there's a great positive pride a noble joy that comes from trying to secure a place of peace and justice. As a father, like, I work so hard for my house to be a place of justice and a place of peace. It's so much work. And yet, I'm learning to try to take a non-self-righteous joy in the difficulty of that work. And I believe that there's joy in it. So as we end— what we're going to do is turn our hearts to the, the ordinance of communion where Jesus demands regularly that we remember again our identity. Our identity in Christ comes from what he has done from us. Our mentality must be rooted in what he is doing in us. He wants us to have a sense of assurance. He wants it to create in us a sense of humility. To drive us to both earnestness and vigilance at every moment. And then to take pleasure in all of those things because the joy of the Lord is our strength.